Do you ever see a successful woman on your feed or in a magazine and think, wow, it must be nice to have it so easy? Well, think again. Behind that glossy cover or smiling face is a ton of hard work, countless failures, and endless learning experiences. I'm Rebecca Minkoff, and I'm here to tell you that success isn't a walk in the park. It takes grit, resilience, and a willingness to take risks. That's why I created Superwoman, a podcast that peels back the varnish and gets into the nitty gritty of what it takes to make it as a woman in today's world. From luminaries and game changers to women you've never heard of but should, this podcast is here to inspire you to take your next leap, no matter how daunting it may seem. We'll explore the sacrifices these women have made, the highs and lows they've experienced, and the lessons they've learned along the way. So if you're ready to be inspired and learn from some of the most successful women out there, join me on Superwomen. Together, we'll uncover the stories behind the successes and prove that with hard work, determination, and a little bit of luck, anything is possible. Hey everyone, you're listening to Superwomen. Today's guest is Anu Muralid Haran. Anu is the COO of Expensify, which is a software company that develops an expense management system for personal and business use. Anu holds a BE in Electrical and Electronics Engineering from Berla Institute of Technology and Science and an MBA from Cornell University. Before joining Expensify, she held vice president positions at Citibank and Marquetta Inc. Anu and I talk about how she immigrated here to go to business school, $120,000 in debt, but with the sheer desire to succeed and make it. How she had to reframe success and adopt three main rules for making sure that the goal she has about success and happiness weren't only about money and titles. Take a listen. Welcome, Anu. I'm so excited to speak to you today. Pleasure to be here. So when I first came across your bio, um, it show, it said that you moved to the States, you immigrated with $120,000 yeah. <laughs> in debt. <laughs> yes, um, I did. <laughs> tell me about what that experience was like and how did you, how did you find yourself in that situation? Yep. So I come from, and you know, in order to tell you the story of how I came to be here, it's important for me to tell you where I come from. Yes. Um, I come from a super humble, very middle-class Indian family. And there's not all that much you can draw a straight line from when you were a teenager to your 40s. But one thing I can always draw a straight line through is always this insatiable hunger I had to get out of there. I just didn't want that middle class nine to five, always trying to make make both ends meet lifestyle for myself. So most of my teenage, a lot of my early 20s was characterized by me just plotting and planning how was I going to be bigger. And that hunger, I would love to look back and say, I was $120,000 in debt going to business school because I just believed in myself so much and I'm such an amazing risk taker. That's not what it was. It was more this desperation and hunger to do something bigger than myself. And the path I identified was if I go to business school, I was a software engineer at the time. And there's a lot of software engineers in India. And it's really hard to sort of break out of that mold and be something bigger. And my plan was if I go to business school and if I go to a good school, then I can get this job that most other people can't get. And that's going to be my launch pad. But $120,000 was just an unimaginable amount of money for me and my parents put together. So somehow we scraped it together 
um, via a bunch of different loans. And that's how I ended up here. And that's a crazy story in and of itself, because I started school in 2007 and I graduated in 2009, by far the worst market. So there's a lot we could talk about. All of these plans kind of fell apart and I had to make new plans with the pressure of unimaginable amount of debt hanging over me. And those were some of the most formative um, years and then there were other crises and other learnings, but that's that's sort of how that story came to be. So just to clarify, because I think in the States, us, you know, being middle class, pre-inflation, right, used to be <laughs> like, I'm doing great. I'm middle class. Okay. But in India, it's not. It's 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 you're still struggling paycheck to paycheck. That's right. Um, okay. For for uh, visual, we were, we were five people in my family. And we lived in an 800 square feet apartment. We didn't have a car or a, a, a vehicle of any kind. We only got a telephone line when I was probably like 15 or 16 years old. And that was a big deal. So, yeah, I've seen my family through getting their first appliances. And we never really had a lot of luxuries. The yeah. one thing I will say is my mom, if, if even possible, was even more ambitious than me for me. So anything to do with my education, she would just do whatever it took, but everything else would suffer, which is an interesting experience because I would go to the best schools because that's that tuition is all they could scrape together. Yeah. But then everybody I'm in school with is at a different level economically yeah. from me. And that was a very that's probably what fueled my hunger because yeah. I was always the poor one. So it just was kind of sad. Yeah. It's interesting you say you were fueled by a desire just to get out and not necessarily at the time a career because when I, mm -hmm. you know, we moved to Florida when I was nine and, you know, half of my reason for New York City and being a designer was I got to get the hell out of Florida, <laughs> you know? I mean, now yeah. it's ironic that I'm back, but um, <laughs> I feel you on just the crushing, like must get there, must get out, must get started. Absolutely. So you... Uh, you graduate 2009. There's no, it's the crash. I remember those days very, very <laughs> clearly. Um, what did you do? Were you panicking? Big time, major panic. But a lot of my um, peers, if you will, like people that had immigrated to go to business school actually went back home. And, and my mom was trying to make me feel better. And she was like, you know, you can come back, we can get a job, we figure this out. But it was just a non-negotiable for me. So my back was against the wall. I refused to go back looking like a loser. So I actually had this process where I would wake up in the morning at 10 o'clock and 10 to 2, I would just cold call companies. And I say that was a very formative experience for me because when I came to business school was the first time I heard the word networking. This was not in our culture. And cold calling was just a shameful thing. Like you're calling somebody to ask for something. They don't even want it. Like, what are you doing? So to overcome a lot of personal inhibitions and just self-imposed barriers. But again, it was just out of need and necessity. Yeah. And slowly, and that's actually how I got both my internship and my job. And that opened my eyes to what can actually be done singularly with my effort. I didn't have any support from the university. I didn't have a network of alumni that helped me, but just by 
doing the thing, I was able to get both an internship and a job. And that always elevated my confidence a step up, at least to be more optimistic about what I could do with my singular effort. And I'm sure you made hundreds, if not thousands of calls, right? Yes. It was, yeah. it was crushing. Yeah. Most people just, the responses were kind of hilarious. Most people didn't know they would be keeping their jobs. So they thought it was ridiculous that I was calling them. And I had gotten it in my head that I must be in New York. I was open to everything, but I was mostly calling companies, banks, financial services companies in New York City. It's a big part of my dream. As stupid as this is going to sound, was I having watched way too much sex in the city in my 20s. <laughs> I wanted to live in New York. So I was just not willing to let go of my dream just yet. So that was more rejection as a result. But, you know, it worked out. And what do you think you said in the one that was the clincher? Like, what do you think you portrayed that they said, mm-hmm. okay, I'll give her a chance, this random girl who's calling? <laughs> a lot of my pitch was, look, I'm a really... I'm a really good student. I know what I'm talking about when it comes to the subject matter because these are finance jobs. And I have, I'm, I'm from India. I'm here for at business school. I will work my ass off for you. I don't care how much you pay. I don't care what the job is. I just want a launch pad. I just want to start with something. So that was kind of my pitch. And I remember I practiced it with a couple of colleagues at business school and they were like, wow, you're selling hard. And even that, I still remember that line because I felt that was very shameful. Like you shouldn't be selling hard, but I had one shot. I had this person on the phone for two minutes. So I'm going to yeah. mince words. Yeah. But you said the two things that everyone probably loved is I'll work hard and I don't care what you pay me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would have done it voluntary basis. So I just needed to stay and ride yeah. out the storm. And yeah, and show that you could work your butt off. Exactly. So how long did it take before you got the job you had mm-hmm. uh, after the internship? And how did, you, how did you navigate that path to where you are today at Expensify? Yeah. So I was at Citibank for four years. And, you know, Citibank is a lot of things that were very good to me. During those four years, my mom passed away and I went back home for a while and they were very supportive of all of that. So I'm always grateful to them. Like I think I'm here because I had that break. Wow. But do you know that um, during COVID, that shipping container that got stuck in the Panama Canal? Yeah. <laughs> I always say that working at Citibank and trying to do anything new is sort of like that. That's the experience. Oh my gosh. Oh just my not going to do anything. Yeah. You have tasks, you do them, and then you go home, and then you get a promotion, and you get like $10,000 more here and there. Like, that's the life. It was not enough for me. And I was constantly trying to figure out how can I get a job where if I show I can do things, I can fast track because there was no fast tracking at Citibank. So I then met my now husband, then boyfriend. He was. He was working at Intel at the time. There was no way for us both to get good jobs and stay in New York. So we made the decision to move to San Francisco. And again, I think I basically did a bunch of LinkedIn messages, cold called a bunch of people and got this job in Oakland, California, this company called Marketa. Um, they're a fintech startup. Well, not a startup anymore. They've gone public. But, you know, that's where, that was my next job. And that job was interesting because I learned a lot. It was sort of trial by fire, like I was doing a lot of things, but I was still sort of stuck in that 
what I now call the hamster wheel of what's the next thing? How am I going to get the next $30,000? How am I going to get the next title? How am I going to keep on playing this game, if you will? That's how I approached it. I really didn't think all that much about what am I doing? What's the output? And do I like it? And is this actually impactful? I always worked hard, but I didn't really concern myself very much with, am I enjoying it? Is it teaching me anything new? I didn't really worry about that all that much. But two years into that job, I would say, was kind of a turning point for me. I completely burned out. I found myself so depressed. I was just unable to bring up the initiative to even go to work, which if you know me at all, like even remotely was not my personality. So it really worried everybody around me. And that was the point in time where I decided I had to just completely change how I was approaching just success as a word. Because to me, it was all these titles and more money and getting out of the rut and being, that was sort of- Paying off your debt. (laughs) Paying off my debt. By that time, I was actually maybe 60% done. Yeah. 40% left. So I was less worried about paying off my debt by that point in time and more worried about, this idea of success I have isn't actually making me happy at all. And it's continuously making me more and more depressed and blue. So I completely changed my approach and I did what I now call the two-year Costanza experiment, which was, I was so deeply programmed with this idea of titles and money that I couldn't think outside of it. So I decided I would follow my heart and not listen to my head for just two years and see where it took me. And that actually changed my entire career trajectory. Wow. So when you made that leap, was there fear? And how did you sort of say my happiness not tied to a title and money is more important than a job or downsizing or or struggling if it's a one household income? Yeah, it. I had debilitating amounts of fear. Every day, there was so much self-doubt and a lot of negative self-talk that I found really hard to control. But the way that I got through it was I approached it like I was playing a game. And I said, you know, I'm doing this thing. It's only two years. And by that point in time, I was probably, I was maybe like 32 or something. By that point in time, I could tell that two years was not a make or break amount of time in my career. Like I could make a mistake for two years and still get back to where I was. Yes, I would have lost two years, but Maybe I can gain five years. So that's kind of what I was gaming. It all really started because I met David, who's the CEO of Expansify, in the course of my job at Marketa. And I liked him, his style of running the company. I liked the company. I didn't particularly have any affinity towards expense management products or anything. Like it was the culture and just the idea of a small company where everybody is, if you have initiative and you do the work, then no one's going to have hierarchy of politics that keep you down. That's what I wanted. And they, we still don't, at the time they didn't, there were no titles at the company. So I would have an entry-level job and I would have to take, I think at the time, thirty or $35,000 pay cut to get the job. So that's why I had to come up with this, okay, I want to do this, but I'm really, really scared. I'm taking a huge step back and it'll come to nothing. So... Everything in my head was screaming, don't do it. But there was something in my heart, a spark that wanted to try it. So that's how I came up with this plan. And in the first year, it was a two-year experiment, but the first year or so, 
was the worst of it. Because of course, in the beginning, I was doing very rudimentary things and it wasn't really all that exciting. And I couldn't quite see how I would go from there to anything big and amazing and a place of happiness. So I had to sort of go by like uh, suspend skepticism, if you will, and keep going. But by the end of the year, everything had changed. So I didn't. By the end of the first year. Yeah. I didn't really need to suspend skepticism, if you will, for two years. By the end of the first year, it was a seismic shift. And I could see what was helping me and how to lean into that more. So second year was much better. And when you, as you raised in the ranks, you know, I also read that you got, you ended up getting the job you wanted. And again, you were met with debilitating depression. Yeah. It wasn't as bad. You're right. Basically the first, so like, as I described, the first year was really hard. Then I started to see patterns that were helping me. And then I saw some early success, but more importantly, getting up and going to work was very exciting, which is actually what I wanted. Um, and then second, most important thing, maybe first actually, was it, or the happiness was derived from the fact that I was doing work that I was very proud of. Mm-hmm. So I think this lifelong exercise for all of us is actually just to impress ourselves. But we put various like words to it. I want to I be this. I want to be that. And all of that is just a way to impress yourself. I was impressing myself. So I was very happy. <laughs> and I and I kind of just like connected those dots and I realized it's people say find your purpose like it's something external, like you're doing something good for other people. Like that's not what it is. If you find your purpose, you're going to be happy with yourself and being happy with yourself is the name of the game. Yeah. So my year two was really good. And I saw I became a director at the company. Things I was doing was coming to fruition. Features I built were mainstream products that a lot of customers used and got, you know, uh, utility out of. And I loved all of that. But as I started to get successful, I sort of forgot all of the reasons, all of the changes I'd made that contributed to it. And I kind of regressed. And it was around that time that uh, it was around COVID, like the regression was complete, if you will. And I happened to meet Amy, Amy Wong, who's my coach at the time. And we started working together and there was a lot of things we worked on together that really, really helped me. But in one of the sessions, I think if I close my eyes, I remember exactly where I was and what she said, and it just came rushing to me. She said, when was the last time you were happy at this job? Because let's go back to that and see what was different. And I can't believe I'd forgotten everything I learned because in that moment, it all came rushing back. And I didn't do anything different. I just went back to those things that I recognized in year one and two. What were those things? Um, I actually wrote wrote it down and I do it in a keynote. And it's the lesson I hope everybody will some in some way, shape or form implement. It's basically these three things. And I kind of kept going back to those three things. The first one is just don't plan too much. And I call it manifest momentum. Don't plan too much. Don't try to visualize how you're going to get from here to the pinnacle of your happiness. 
sort of like if you're learning to swim, don't try to visualize swimming the English Channel because the fact that you can't even breathe in the water, right? You know, it's just going to make you. It's going to discourage you. So, my approach had been. I'm going to take this thing. I think this is a critical problem worth solving at the company. It's not a massive project. It's just a thing. And I'm going to bring my best to this task and I'm going to do it. And then at the end of it, I'm going to learn something from that and then find and do the next thing. So that's kind of how I approached overcoming that negative self-talk that was constant in my head in year one. It's gradiently, it's like gradiently approaching big goals. Exactly. Right. And trying not to, connect all the dots immediately, but just take a few steps forward first because yeah. those dots will automatically emerge and you will find a path. But mm-hmm. trying to find them before you've done anything is just a surefire way of talking yourself out of doing anything. So I just call it like talk yourself into it. Don't talk yourself out of it. Like just go forward a little bit. And if it doesn't work, you can always retrace. doesn't matter. Right. So that was one. And two was a very important one. Be not just a strategic expert, but also a tactical expert. So like I mentioned, a lot of these, a lot of impressing yourself is gaining confidence that you can figure things out and you can do things as opposed to this constant idea of like, am I a fraud? Am I just doing things and by accident I'm getting promoted? Because I had a lot of that. Like somehow I'm the one fraud that has made it. And any, <laughs> everybody... Yes. Me too. I, I sat there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And people will discover me and now what will happen? You know, that fear. So wh- how I overcame. And so the solution to that is really to know in your heart that you're good. You can do things and you're smart, you know, like that's very difficult. But I think the way to get there is by doing the work, because a lot of people think if I'm a senior person, I'm a strategic mastermind and I shouldn't do the grunt work. Because if I do that, people will think I'm junior or something like this idea that it's beneath me. And then alongside that is also this idea of like, okay, this is how this task is done. This is the path that people take when they're faced with a job like this. And so never questioning that and sort of following. When you put those two things together, you end up being somebody that does things, but you didn't come up with how to do it. You didn't even do it. So it constantly leaves you in that loop of, it worked, but how? Who knows? So you never develop self-confidence. So every job, every task that I picked up, I would sort of from scratch think through how to do it before I just kind of defaulted to how other people do it. And then I would do the work. That's actually how I built up my confidence. So that was number two, to so be a strategic and tactical expert. And the third is just conventional wisdom, right? Team up carefully, like choose who you surround yourself with. Because you could easily be part of a crew that is giving you toxic reconditioning and that they don't mean to, but they are constantly doubting what you're doing or what other people are doing. And this toxic talk amongst you feels good in the moment, but it doesn't help you in the long run. So just choose your company wisely. Yeah. What I find interesting about everything you say is the antithesis of what I hear in a lot of young people, like pay cut, why would I take a pay cut? Or (laughs) I shouldn't have to do that. That's not in my job description. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or I did that five years ago. I shouldn't have to do that again. And, you know, and then, you know, the, the deep desire, even if you're an executive within the company to do the gossip and the, you know, toxic, let me, let me shit all over the boss. 
Totally. Um, And those are such three things that, that won't get you to where you want to be, frankly, right? Absolutely. Someone will hear your cooler talk. And the fact that you're talking like that doesn't make you look like a leader. You look like a disgruntled employee, like you've got to walk the walk. So I think that's pretty important. But also when you do a lot of negative talking, like in the moment, it feels very gratifying. But later, you just feel kind of yucky. Yeah. You didn't do anything positive. You just bitched for a while. It's just not good. Yeah. So today you're the COO. What does the job look like for you? And how do you continue to manifest even now your goals at a very big and public company? So the job hasn't changed dramatically. I still do not all the grunt work, but enough to move my projects forward. But the dramatic way in which it's changed, which I'm really enjoying is a lot of, especially women at the company that want to take their jobs a step further, that want to level up personally. And I've noticed that I have a voice and I'm able to help them, which is also something I stumbled upon. I was always the person that spoke up uh, for and against ideas, but something has shifted in that. People care about what I think, so I have more influence and I want to use that influence to get more people to level up their own contributions. So I'm really enjoying mentoring a few people at the company, helping them sort of see how the same things you mentioned, like these kinds of ideas of why am I doing the same thing today that I was doing five years ago? I'm trying to change that for them to see it doesn't, if 20 to 30% of your job is repetitive and you're doing the same thing, that's not a bad thing. So long as you're moving your projects forward and that manual grunt work that you're doing is actually helping you. You're not dependent on anyone else to move forward is a good thing. So that that aspect of like growing other people is a, is not brand new, but is newer with a leadership role and is, is super fun. It's more fun than I expected. And so are you setting tactical and strategic, small and or large goals that keep impressing yourself? Wow, that's a great question. It's been a tough 2023. No, really? You don't say. (laughs) (laughs) It's been really rough for us because we went public in late 2021, which was the best of times. We had our window. Yep. And then 2022, 2023 has been crazy bad. Or like it feels crazy bad because we've always, always had growth. And we've never had to worry about conversion or getting more leads. Like these are all new things. So in 2023, I actually kind of shifted my focus. I was more operations, product management, and even investor facing before 2022. And in 2022, 2023, I took on a lot of go-to-market style projects. Like I've never done anything in marketing, but I spent the better part of 2020 trying to figure out how digital marketing, performance marketing works. So I don't know if I'm impressing myself because a lot of it is a huge slog. I guess I'm impressed with myself for trying to do something (laughs) that is totally out of my wheelhouse. And I'm very happy that I'm learning. But it, it is in my nature to be very impatient and to get easily disheartened. And I have to kind of talk myself 
prop myself up from that. So that's what I meant by, I mean, in a lot of ways, 2023 has been challenging, but that's been a key challenge of you do something, you don't get the results, and I immediately want to throw in the towel and then I coach myself to keep going. Yeah, that's how I am, especially with the scale right now. Mm, Tell (laughs) me more. The scale? Oh, no, just the, you know, I had a baby a year ago and things aren't going back the way they should. Um, (laughs) And so if I don't get, you know, a pound a day, which is not even real, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to eat the cheesecake then. Oh, I see. The scale, like, wait. Oh, my God. Don't even get me started on my (laughs) problems with weight management. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's it's mental weight more than anything else. We don't talk enough about that. Like, um, I, I have... I've always had this struggle with the weight, with the scale. And recently, and you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have digital photography. It was all like, you know, uh, physical pictures. So one of my friends had gone home and found a stash of pictures from when we, and she scanned a bunch of them and sent them to me. And the thing is, throughout my teenage years, I was convinced I was fat, not just fat, like obese, like really fat. And I always tell people this, I'm a fat, I was a fat kid. So, you know, I'll always be a fat kid in my mind. <laughs> she sent me this picture. I'm not even slightly overweight. It knocked me sideways. All of this time that I thought of myself a certain way and I was, and there was not enough photographic evidence till she sent it to me and I just couldn't believe it. So at every point in time, we're more beautiful than we think. Yes. I look back at my pregnancy where I thought I was an elephant and I thought, <laughs> oh, I actually was not an elephant, it, you know, but I felt like beautiful. one and I looked, I told myself every day I was one. So yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I always end my podcast with two personal questions. What yeah. would we be surprised to know about you? And what advice would you like to leave listeners with? Hmm. I think most people are surprised when I tell them this. I don't know if it's surprising just from your interaction with me here today. I'm a huge introvert. And when I tell most people, they're like, no, you're not. No. <laughs> but I, after I've been around people for a bit of time, like even a few hours, I find it very draining. Yeah. So I know COVID has been awful to so many people, but it's been good to me in that I don't have to go into work every day. And that social interaction has really decreased. And that's actually made me do my best work because I can wind down, I can just be with myself and then I can re-energize and get back. Yeah. Um, and I get endless amounts of time with my puppy, which is just amazing. So that's something people will be surprised to hear about me. What advice do I have for people? That the number one thing is, I think when we say success, we all have different definitions. But I think the real success is being impressive to yourself. So I would urge people when they are feeling confused or not or want clarity to just think, like, is what I'm doing impressive to me? If it isn't, how can I change that? Because I think that's the formula. I love that you say that. I feel like I had a a very crystal clear moment of that when we launched my book, And it was during COVID. So it was like a virtual book tour. And we held an event, a digital event with like 5,000 people came and sold 16,000 books. And I had these incredible speakers that myself and my, my, uh, a girl that I work with had booked. And I was like, damn, that was so much fucking work, more work than I ever (laughs) anticipated. 
but shit, we did a good job. And it was just two of us with no help from anyone else. You know, I love that. I and I just felt remember amazing. being, yeah, just, so I, I really, I love that you share that because some people might be like, I don't want to sound too egotistical or self important, but it starts with you. If you're not impressed with yourself, who else is going to be? Totally. And you're going to tell you, you're going to be in your head more than anyone else. So yeah. you're just going to negate any compliments that come your way or any positive validation is all gone. Exactly. Um, so do you have a public profile that people can follow? Yes, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. And I love hearing from people. Often um, people will reach out and especially early stage uh, women entrepreneurs. I would love to help you. Um, if I started this thing very recently, where if you're sort of in the seed stage, a stage, or if you're a very small business entrepreneur and you want a sounding board, you want to work with someone to see how you can take your business to the next level. I'd love to help you. So please reach out. I'd um, love to be part of your journey. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anu, for joining and for sharing these great words. It's not often that I feel like you'll meet someone at your level that um, goes back and does the work, which is impressive. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I just wanted to thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I also want to ask you to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a pain in the butt, but it actually helps with search and algorithms. So if you love this podcast, it is an easy way to get it more visible and out there. I also want you to follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Minkoff at RM Superwomen and be sure to check out my book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. Thank you again and you will hear from me next week.